welcome to Twin Peaks The Return. This um, particular episode will be analysing part six of the series. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch. And with us today as a special guest is the one and very much only Christian McRae. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Andy and Hayley. It's a pleasure to be here. We've just come from the ACME event, No One Is Innocent, where we were all panellists along with Claire Nina Norelli, who will be with you in a couple of weeks. Okay. But you all did a great job. There was lots of expertise in the room. Um, we didn't overdo it either. We didn't sort of press on. Um, Claire was great. You were mm. a bunch um, that was easy to understand, but also much more, much more in depth than we might have expected. And yes. so it yes. had a really nice vibe. Questions were good. Mm-hmm. Fantastic show all around. Hooray! Cool. Um, can you briefly tell us oh, the, the the audience how you came to be so? Uh, well-informed about Twin Peaks and your particular passion? Well, I'm, I have the very great privilege of being a cultural academic. I teach at RMIT's School of Media and Communication. I used to teach at a couple of other universities in town as well. And I've been teaching film, video games, popular culture for 15 years. The other part of why I got tapped to do it is because as a researcher and as a writer, I've been working on um, science fiction for a little while and I've got a book that I'm currently writing on David Lynch's Dune, um, which is coming out through Alter Press's Constellation series. It's a sh- series of very short books um, about science fiction. They've got a horror series and a science fiction series. So there's other books in the series like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Robocop, and um, I'm really excited to work on David Lynch's book on David Lynch's Dune, which is you know has legions of very very serious fans and many, many more legions of very, very serious detractors. And it's <laughs> perfect for me. I love a good argument about culture, so I'm, I'm, I've been enjoying looking into it. Well, to bring it back to Twin Peaks, we're a third of the way into the series now, um, and so I'm really keen to see how it measures up to our to your like particular um, takes at the beginning, because we didn't actually do a predictions thing in the very first episode zero. We kind of more introduced ourselves and what we we're going to do. But I'm keen to see how you're feeling that it measured up I don't know. I'm still, I'm still just letting things kind of unfold in front of me. I must admit, um, this this part that we're talking about now, part six, was probably the most personally satisfying for me, while also simultaneously con- containing the first scene that I felt was really jarring and not actually something that I really wanted to experience, and something that I feel is maybe and. An, an antithesis of what Twin Peaks has kind of been presenting so far. But, oh, my God, there's there's so much wonderful, meaty stuff that just happened this episode. Mm. I think we, we got revealed a bunch of things that I think a lot of people had guessed was going to happen, and there was a lot of stuff that I think possibly very few people were anticipating. Yeah. Well, I've been, I mean, like, like both of you, I've been really, you know, built up a lot of very, very strange expectations, especially over the last year. You know, there were rounds of rumours about the show starting up. So I've been sort of really, really looking forward to revisiting the the setting, not necessarily the town. I wasn't necessarily... I didn't, need it, I didn't need to go back to the Black Lodge. I didn't need to go back to the Sheriff's Department. Um, but I wanted to get back into the world. So I've been really, really satisfied by Dougie, by Vegas, by all those other places and all those other times and seeing this universe bubble and expand and grow that at the same time the town has changed in ways that I think are really interesting too so it's a different type of show 
it isn't sticking to a format that's boring for each mm. reveal. It's got enough comedy that it looks different to anything else that's on TV right now. So I'm pleasantly surprised. There's some things that I'm sketchy on. I'm still like, uh-oh, this is way too much nostalgia. Mm-hmm. This is like clearly for the fans that is pandering almost. But it, there's not enough of it that I've turned it my my face away in disgust and go, I can't do it anymore. Mm. And especially after you get a few key scenes and a few key moments where you go, that's genuinely fresh. I've n- I had no idea what happened. I'm, it's going to take me years to recover, <laughs> like episode three. Mm. And I felt, you know, that's genuinely satisfying to watch something where you go, that's going to be with me until the rest of my life. Yeah. Like it's a mm. new visual, new, new sounds. It's going to be something that I'm going to have to work with and work through. And I think last episode you got enough of the concert of the dark, the comedic and the soap opera elements kind of starting to weave together in a way that is quite interesting now, which is like, this is the most show-like that yeah. Twin Peaks is, the, the new series has been, mm-hmm. um, where it's just keeping its format very, very tight. And at the same time, when I say that, there's like whole new characters, whole new subplots that have been introduced in really bizarre ways too. Cool, well let's dive in. So we begin where we left, we finished off at the end of part five with uh, Dougie Coop by the statue. The music cue is the same as we finished with the previous um, previous part as well. We've got the same jazz sax score. Um, Cooper is clutching a bunch of files through his chest and pulling his left sleeve like he's trying to take off his jacket or there's some sort of way that he's obscuring his hand in a really interesting way. Did you um, pick up on anything? <laughs> Any symbolism happening here? There's a couple of the ways in which you think, oh, okay, he's trying to obscure his hand in order to make it look like the gun but there's pretty quickly you sense that there's something else going on yeah it's cold mm. or there's another element that's going on and of course trying to retract his arm mm. you might be remembering the lodge of course so uh, i remember seeing the one-armed man and, and so there could be all sorts of all sorts of moments when it's, it's quick enough and it doesn't dwell on it enough that you still go dougie's not Coop Dougie is not disintegrating yet. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still the memories that he's expressing. Yeah. The the really quite touching part of this scene that I found was his interaction with the the, the patrolling policeman who Mm. had already told him at the end of the previous episode, you've got to move along, sir, there's no loitering here. And it's it's one of the one of the most notable cases I think where you see someone actually clocking that there is something wrong with Dougie and trying their best to actually help him Mm. i I was actually quite moved the way the the officer interacted with him and tried to question him and clearly knew that there was something wrong and was just trying to get him home to someone who would be able to help him further i think the way that everyone else has been behaving with dougie has been one of those like yeah low level emotionally upsetting things that has has kept happening sometimes played comedically but with this really sad undercurrent of people don't really want to get involved, even if it's someone that they work with, even if it's someone that they see every day and they know that something's wrong, they still don't want to intervene in something that could impact them in a way that they're not expecting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the person who is doing this is a policeman as well. So we still get Lynch, Frost's moral policeman trope. Um, So Dougie identifies his home as the red door and he's taken back to Naomi Watts. And he's explained that he seems a little disoriented Dougie's without his ID and has no response to um, where his car, car is. Um, there's an envelope on the map, which I think is an interesting throwback to Lost Highway, maybe, with mm. mysterious unmarked envelopes turning up on people's doorsteps. Yeah, there's, the, there's a couple of Lost Highway elements returning. And I love, you know, Lost Highway isn't actually Lynch's favourite film, 
mm. in retrospect, but there's some of the themes to persist um, through the later projects. So I, I felt like Naomi Watts, who is now ramping up in, yeah. in, her, in her anger, mm. <laughs> quite rightly, is holding together the scenes in a way that is like very sharp, angry acting, but all the comedy is still centered between them. It's still working um, mm. quite well. Mm. When he goes upstairs to gesticulate and to interact with Sonny and Jim and offer him a chip, um, you are fi- I think you now get the sense that whatever Cooper is, is now returning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, has, he knows that the other thing over there, a child wants to eat. So there is now something else churning out on the surface. And it's just great to see Carl McLaughlin. He must have gone into the meeting with Lynch and said, I'll come back, but I'm not playing Cooper. Mm-hmm. And Lynch has gone. Yeah, sure. It must have. It must have. Conversation must have gone something like that. Right. Because he's been given all this scope to to really refine a very, very particular. I mean, McLaughlin's history of working in the theatre, obviously, mm-hmm. has all just you know, it's come back to this very, very key role that he's been allowed to really reinvent mm-hmm. and just become like big symbolic shards of face acting and body acting. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah, it's it it's really is the most enjoyable thing about this this new series for me. And yeah, I find it interesting the interplay between Dougie Coop and Sonny Jim and and Janie and uh, questions that I keep mulling over is what's going to happen to Dougie's family when Coop recovers mm. himself. Who who is Sonny Jim? If he is the son of Dougie, then by extrapolation is he also the son of Cooper? And will he feel some kind of parental link or some kind of feeling of responsibility towards Sonny Jim and also to Janie as well yeah. who mm. despite her mounting frustrations at, at Dougie and his philandering <laughs> and his betting money and all of that sort of thing will he feel some sense of responsibility to her as his doubles partner mm, yeah yeah good point and um, because she does get to like stretch much further particularly in, even in these opening scenes I mean more so later but there's a, the beautiful interaction of her, like almost forgiving him straight away once she finds out about the Jade photograph mm. and um, all this sort of stuff. Mm. And the great, you know, Jade gives two rides, I'll bet she does, sort of line. <laughs> she just delivered that beautifully, I thought. Um, they have a landline, which was yes. nice old man touch. Mm. <laughs> yes. Um, well, that's if, that, that's if, you know, all of these Cooper scenes are taking place within 2017, true. which as we yeah. had discussed, maybe time is not so linear. Mm. Mm. Um, so this scene um, also gives a chance for more symbolism to be thrown in by Janie agreeing to meet uh, the, the people who are after the money on the corner Big of sporters. Guinevere and Merlin. <laughs> Hello, <and> Clung. <laughs> these, these estates and their theme names are just glorious. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have a big day tomorrow. Big day. Um, and then she kisses his head in this really quite a sweet way, which I don't think I've ever seen somebody just discover that their partner is cheating on them. She just seems to get over it quite quickly. Mm. It seems to be yeah, very important that she's a, ge- a warm, genuine... Yeah, their, their, their dynamic is very interesting, and particularly in this scene where you kind of get the sense really solidly for the first time that she's she's the one with the pants in the house, mm. and she's the one who makes sure that everything keeps running. And it yeah. seems like when Dougie has disasters, it's Janie who... She, she rolls up with the muscle and the fierceness. Yeah, mm. it's not she, the first time she's mm. had to do this. Yes, yeah, yeah you get that impression. Um, and then after she leaves, we have an interesting flash to traffic lights. <gasps> the first. The first. first. Yeah, that was, I was jumping out of my chair at that moment. I'm sure I wasn't alone. And we also got that with the sh- sound of the electricity short-circuiting. So we know something, something's very ominous, something's about to happen. 
Um, then we get a uh, vision of the red room. I thought I thought we might be moving locations entirely, but then it turns out a few seconds later that this is just vision yeah. occurring to to Dougie Coop. So he's obviously being communicated with by one other man, presumably other agents that are there. I feel like it doesn't. So far, I've not felt that those cues have needed to be there. Mm-hmm. You sort of get like we get this is happening already. We know this is happening. It's now like a telegram from the red room. It's like, no, we got it. It's okay. He's like, he's going to be, he's going to be all right. But actually this time that there's actually something very ominous communicated, don't die. And it's not just because of him, but because he's got a role in some kind of larger yes. field. I was like, actually, yeah, that is a reason why now we have to speak to him. Now we have to communicate again. Um, so I felt like, okay, this isn't actually too overly cute. There's something quite, ominous emerging again yeah and it's also one of the moments where Lynch gets a character to say what the audience is feeling yeah where he's pleading with him well first of all we get this unusual movement of one-armed man walking around like he's blind with his hand um, reaching up and then he says you've got to wake up you've got to wake up and of course that's what everyone has been telling Dougie Coop <laughs> from the through the TV screen for the last uh, five episodes um, so that was that was a nice touch I thought as well um, it's also I found it quite an emotionally moving scene that as mm. well like you're pleading with him like and he looks kind of confused and there's some sort of vague recollection but there's nothing really nothing really shifted I don't feel mm. so, um, so, so one of the theories was that you know, that's how he's going to come around but now I feel like well maybe it's not going to be the case it's not going to be quite that simple uh, and then Dougie goes through the um, case files. We fingers, he, puts, he runs his finger over the number seven in, in quite an interesting way, and then he starts going through the case files and drawing these ladders and staircases. Well, that's what it, at least it seems like it is. But then there's been a bunch of theories around this as well. Like, do you have a particular take on these symbols that he's drawing on the case files? There's a big classic case for me is when I was seeing that, it's like I definitely don't want to go online and read what other people are doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Clearly, there's a sequence of, and I know, like, there's, it's, it's obvious, but he's recalling his journey in and out of the different spaces he's been through. The ladder to the top of the roof of the, of the grim box. Or, yeah. I don't even know its official fan culture name, the second red room, yeah. the double, double evil place. Um, <laughs> double evil sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I felt like, obviously, he's being directed by the lights to, mm-hmm. to make some kind of mark. But we have, again, we have an emergence of something, but it might not be Cooper. It might be like another thing that's speaking with him and through him. Mm-hmm. We're not quite sure whether it's his consciousness coming back or whether it's, it's something else. So I really enjoyed its ambiguity. The way it wraps up with later in the episode with his boss, yeah, Bushnell, um, Bushnell mm-hmm. I felt like, you know what? Yep, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Like it's, the sa- it's Mr. Jackpot's back at it again. <laughs> go for it just push it all the way into that into that comedy zone I, I love it yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like by the time we got to the point with his boss with Bushnell and he's looking through these case files looking at these what he says like childish scribbles and is seemingly getting increasingly more and more frustrated and then he starts re-looking at things and this sense of dawning realization comes on his face and that amazing moment where he doesn't reveal what he's gleaned exactly from what Dougie's done but basically says you know you've saved our ass we Mm. won't talk about this outside our room I'm very disturbed by the things that I've seen here and I was sitting there going I cannot believe 
that they've literally just done an entire metaphor about this show via <laughs> scribbles on case files. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Dougie basically uncovers um, some corruption going on between Anthony Sinclair, who's Tom Sizemore's character, who we referred to as he's lying in his one of his rare outbursts. So it seems like there's these two investigators who are, who are paired with, with Anthony Sinclair on particular cases. So there's something going on yeah. here. Um, there's a really great scene. I thought the one of the funniest ones so far was him in the elevator the next day, like just standing there smiling at it. Like it was kind of reminiscent of him clapping with the lights with Sonny Jim, yeah. where he says he's interacting with this, the technology of the, of the world and finding it really entertaining for comedy, comedic effect, which was a nice touch. There's a beautiful scene where he copies instead of returning the handshake with Bushnell. <laughs> Just positioning himself Yeah, positioning himself in the shadow. Shadow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was gorgeous. Also, he's wearing his black suit again. Yes, which, which was a... Feels like another step toward the Cooper mm. that people are wanting so badly. So um, then we can move to the scene with uh, Naomi Watts, possibly her greatest scene yet in the uh-huh. park. With uh, the dude from Lost and some other guy. Yeah. <laughs> the dude from Lost. I can't remember his name, but he's no. yeah, seems very excited that he's in, in, in the scene. Yep, she basically tells them to absolutely get stuffed and uh, pays them off half price. Mm-hmm. Beautifully, um, yeah. Tough dame. Tough dame. Tough dame. Very tough. But she also draws them into the entire world of evil in this, mm-hmm. little, in this rant that she has, which is kind of beautiful as well, because we see evil coming out in a very unusual way in a, f- a few scenes' time that we ha- we're not really typically associating with Twin Peaks. With these kind of sporadic random acts. We also, than, I think we have a couple of cues in this episode to like a vision of America that's emerging as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, You know, she mentions the 99%. We've got two references to the war that occur in this episode too. And so, Obamacare, I believe. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different like cues that are lining up very quickly in this episode, painting that the town is going through stuff that is bigger than the characters, mm-hmm. um, or multiple towns, I guess. So I felt that was a nice little weird cue that she mixed in there, which is obviously hers to claim and also weird. There's a very, very nice cue. Wherever she is and wherever Lancelot Court is, it's obviously like a very different town to Twin Peaks, but it's just as beset by fakery, by evil, by the secrets behind closed doors. But it's a bit, it looks different, it feels different, but it's got very, very similar dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you were to start Twin Peaks today, it would be more that would be more typical than the Twin Peaks that we knew from 1990, which is maybe yeah, more typical for that yeah, era. Yeah, you would be set in these kind of suburban sprawls. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. sort of half working, half not. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, we also get a uh, scene at Rancho Rosa where the, uh, the coroner's van turns up to collect the bodies and we get a repeated shot of the junkie across the road yelling 119. Which is that a repeated shot? It's exactly the same, yeah. Mm. It's yeah. repeated from part three. And the police find the back of the car and the number plate on the roof of the house and they take the plate number, which is presumably going to be mm. answering um, Janie's question, where is your car? <laughs> I think the junkie for me is like, I'm going to need a very good satisfying loop mm-hmm. because that to me is like, Lynch, when Lynch just goes for like a... An, like you, you mentioned today at the panel at Acme, he can just abstract out a caricature or, or you know, a myth of a person, really, and just put it on screen, choose the right actor, and he can just deliver it. Sadly, when he gets it, just when he just go, goes halfway with the sketch, you just get junkie. Yeah. Mm. And I felt, for me, it's like th- that junkie could be doing anything else. It, she could be watching TV. It would be better. She could be playing cards. It would be better. But that, like, that is so different to the rest of that world mm. that I felt like I'm going to need something really good here. Mm-hmm. Whatever that 119 is, I want, like, 
super payoff. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. because the boy is so much richer and more yeah. interesting. Looking through that brown haze across the road at this very strange sequence of events. The boy is sort of exploring and seeing all this stuff unfold. We know we're going to see the boy again. Mm. And I feel like the, the child's got a lot going on mm. that the mother potentially doesn't at the moment. Yeah, I feel like she's likely to be a smaller part of a very important story. Yeah. she's There's some sort of potential way of communicating with the spirit world through drugs that's being perverted. Well, there's some sort of way that she's going to like, act. Yeah. It's going to be that or it's going to be like communicating to a camera that's, that's someone else, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then we cut to the motel still in Las Vegas um, where we get Ike Spike rolling dice and recording numbers next to a half-drunk bottle of bourbon, um, which I don't know if there's continuity error, but, but it suddenly cuts between the door and then back to him again and then his glass has vanished. Like, it's completely empty. Mm-hmm. So it's, it would be weird because there's almost no such thing as a continuity error with Lynch because he's so such a perfectionist. Meticulous. But there's something strange going on. The sequence is also not colour graded at all. Really? Mm. It looks so, when you look at it, it is so raw. Yeah. It's got like very, very direct fluorescent like coloring. And then it changes and the color of his skin changes later on. And you go, there's no, there's zero chance that this is just him forgetting. Yeah. So for me, it's got to be a second unit or someone else doing the pickups or something. Because it's not, it's not lazy, but it's Mm -hmm. certainly like. It doesn't look great compared yeah. to all the other shots in the episode. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and I was like, I like, I kind of like, I know a bunch of people, I'm like, I hate this character. I hate, I hate what, how it gets introduced. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know. I'm sort of, it's like an assassin that gets someone from the weird devil facts. I'm good at, I'm into it. Yeah, same. <laughs> Sorry, before that scene, we had a shot in uh, of Duncan Todd giving a red square on his computer screen. Sorry. The red square stuff, the computer stuff is so interesting so far. Isn't it? You guys mentioned it. Yeah, Yeah. we've mentioned it as in like old men thinking how computers work. But this seems almost like there's there's something spiritual and wrong within the wires, within the Mm. within the machines themselves that is heralding such things as hey, contact this assassin to whack somebody. Yeah. So I think the moment, my opinion is. I think that's Doppelcoop communicating with him to finish off the hit job that Lorraine didn't do before. Lorraine is the woman who we saw at the beginning of the previous part. Mm. Uh, and then he does, he does it very carefully, take, you know, with the napkin on his hand, opens the safe, takes out the middle folder, which has an ominous dot on it. And then it turns up in the next scene with Ike the Spike um, getting slid under his door. The, Lorraine has, seems to have her own theme. I'm interested what you guys take, what your take is on this, because as soon as she's ever on screen, we get the same song playing, which is this song by Blunted Beats, and the song's called "I Am." Hmm. But also, if, and if, you've, if you if you if you Google the words um, "old school hip hop beat," it's one of the first things that comes up on on YouTube. <laughs> so that, I'm would sure be, that would just be him like. Like Googling. Well, yeah, this is the theory. It's like, is it just, he just pulls it up. But it, even when her photo turns up on the screen, she's not even on the scene, boom, you get this this cue. And it's sharp. It's not mm. like a fade it's, in. It's no, cool. and it's very, yeah, it's, it's so much louder than a lot of the other music cues and almost completely overwhelming. Like, Lynch really wants you to pay attention yeah. to this. It's just bizarre. I think, I think Lynch's reputation for precision and carefulness gets overblown. Mm. I think sometimes he treats it like he treats his painting and his sculpture, where he's just, there's shapes that have to go together, bang, 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 ship mm. it, we're done. Yeah. And that is, that is as rare as his precision. When he gets really precise, really takes his care, it's very, very rare. But I think his just absolute, almost trash cinema, exploitation cinema approach mm. to some things is, is really, people don't 
don't give it enough credit in a way <laughs> for being so sloppy. I think this is one of those cases where it feels so jarring, but it's sort of like, yeah, great. We finally have a mix. Mm. We've got a mixture of different places. Mm. So yeah. I, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed that sequence. The murder. Yeah, yeah. it's <clears> like <throat> shit, Jarlo. <laughs> this was the scene I intimated earlier on in our introductions that it's the first scene where I felt this isn't Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. This is something else. Because, yeah, obviously during this scene, Ike the Spike basically goes on a rampage through Lorraine's office, kills someone before he kills her. The sequence where Lorraine is murdered is just like, and I've spoken a lot about the use of violence in Twin Peaks and how it's generally always pointed and has a point to it within the greater story. It's generally something that's treated as very, very tragic and that we should be upset about it. And, but this is just, this is pure slasher movie. Mm, this yeah. is, there's just blood everywhere. There's all of these, it's gratuitous. And like, that's, a, that's the objective I keep coming back to is gratuitous. Mm -hmm. These images of Ike, like driving the implement into Lorraine's chest and she's vomiting up blood and it's splattering everywhere. And I was really, I was really disturbed and upset by this scene because as we are at the moment, I don't understand how it fits into the greater scheme of things. I think it was a really sloppily done scene just from a cinematic point of view. And I, I also, yeah, I do have to mention the fact of we're really going to go with the trope of the murderous little person. Like, mm. really? We're going to trot this one out? Okay. Mm. Yeah, it was very, very tortured. But I wonder if it's going to loop back. Um, the character is like obviously on some kind of collision course with Coop, mm. right? So whatever this whole setup was is meant to obviously... Now we've got a couple of things that are now going to happen to Coop on his return to town mm. that we know are pretty bad. Yeah. So I felt like as a setup... Like, sure, we can have an assassin. If, but you yeah. know what it feels like? It feels like the Yakuza in yes. season mm. in the early Twin Peaks. Where it's like, this is, it's there, but it doesn't need to be there in this particular way. And yeah. it just mm -hmm. is like, it adds enough intrigue to the show. But I wish this was done in a much quicker way as well. Right. Do you think this is possibly one of the parts where they realize, well, we've got 18 parts to play with now instead of nine. So let's just... It's sure. All this stuff that was meant to be a smaller part of the original. Sure, story. but like you, like with this show, you just never know. You just never know. He could turn up to be a really interesting character. It could turn up in a really interesting scene. But I think I don't know. I haven't read what other people think online. But I was looking at it saying I've seen a lot of trauma films. This is all trauma. Yeah. This is like mm. first camera in the hallway, first take, filmed in a half hour kind of sequence. Mm, yeah. It's fine. I don't mind because I watch that shit every day. But it is what it is. It's you can't fake it and say oh it's done for particular effect. I yeah. Because okay. it's like no, it's not. I I would have appreciated more it more if they'd gone full Jalo to be honest because at least it would have been far more beautifully composed and yeah. you know not as look, as hideous to look at. Yeah. Her but death is just throwaway. What we're getting though is a world where there's a lot of people waiting in rooms mm. with no furniture waiting for secret messages right we've got new york in episode one where we've got the, the white box being watched we've got people waiting for messages there we've got jade and dougie in a kind of half abandoned lot so we've got a lot of places that are built 
but not occupied. Mm-hmm. And I felt like Ike is one more of those of those places. And I think leading up to the uh, murder investigation in the first couple of episodes as well, we're getting a sense that half of these places are people who've lived there their whole lives and half of, the, half of them have not. There's no one. Yeah. The yeah. whole world is like half lived in. Mm-hmm. So I liked that element of it. Uh, visually, I like that element of it. But yeah, this episode has those dips, I think. Mm, yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, we also visit an unknown city where Albert is driving in the rain. My <laughs> I did fucking drink Gallic. <laughs> I, I did particularly love the um, in, the kind of Cooper-esque introduction. It's 34 degrees and raining mm. when he's on the phone to mm. Cole, which I thought was a nice little throwback. And Cole had, you know, and Lynch gives himself a cracking line. About, oh, that I'll, glorious I'll line. I'll think of you while I'm, thank you, darling, drinking this Bordeaux. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> while Albert is in the freezing cold rain. Yeah, and the, yeah, the beautiful fuck you Gene Kelly line. It delivered so well. So amazing. No one else has delivered me all of the gifts of Albert that I've requested, <laughs> but I will continue to ask nicely if someone could gift that for me. I would be enormously appreciative. I think it's already on there, but we're not allowed to mention a certain place that begins with R. <gasps> no, 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 no. So we won't. But, but I really um, like the fact that Albert is sad and, and is wistful and he's broken. Like, because he has the best speech of the original series. Yes, like absolutely. By, like, by a zillion miles. Mm. And you think he's the moral centre but he's like, it's, he's a pure unit. He's a pure mm. soul. And here, that soul has gone through something that isn't mm. recoverable. And he's now like trying to recover. And the way he just achingly just drops, he just, he's an old guy. He's just like, please just help me. That's mm. what says Diane, she turns around. And you think he's just like at his last limit, mm. yeah. as it turns out. Yeah, I always felt that he was such a, interesting and beautiful character in a way because when he's first introduced in the original series you know he's like the rational guy who comes into this ridiculous situation of a show and he's the guy who points out to everyone how ridiculous it all is how backwards these people are and as a viewer you start getting angry with him because you're like how dare you you're puncturing the magic of this this wonderful place that i found myself in but he's this beautiful rationalist who just doesn't back down and then as you said christian he ends up having that beautiful speech Mm. about essentially you know trusting in cooper and trusting in the universe and you realize that this is a guy who through cooper has a very he has a very firm view of the world and how things work mm. and how things should work. And the way things should work is Dale Cooper is there to always have your back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also to trust the path that you've been given mm. and the path of peace. And I think when we think about those themes coming out, not just him, but the way Cooper and the sheriff kind of work out, you know, there's, I mean, there's parts that suck, but when they start to introduce elements, in series two, like the White Lodge and that very weird set of discussion with Major Briggs. Mm. I think that stuff's really touching when they're like, actually, there's a tr- they're trying to achingly move towards mm. this big moral universe and there's lots of places to discover that we're all, you know, you sort of think, I'm going to go here, we're going to go there. And Albert is, is the key for me because in a way he's like what you are told you should be watching the show as like he's he's the pair of eyes you're the rationalist you're the one who should be shocked by the black lodge you're the one that should be confused but here he's like actually shut the fuck up yeah Yeah. like it's coming you can do it like you can take charge of this situation not just trust cooper but trust yourself absolutely like he says i love you Sheriff truman and it's like this key moment and it brings together all the themes of that sequence 
So here, it's like, actually, he hasn't got all the answers. And mm. he needs, like... And he's, he's done something awful as well, as we, mm. as we know with Gordon. So. Yes, yes. There's yes. guilt through this as well. Yeah, so him actually being the one to find Diane and reach out to her is extraordinarily touching. And also, we need to talk about the fact that the possibly the most <laughs> poorly concealed uh, casting <laughs> of this entire show is, yes, Laura Dern is Diane. Yeah, did it work for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it was one of the few times where, because, you know, I, I try not to be a theorist. I don't want to, like, accidentally gazump myself mm-hmm. while, while watching this show because I just really do enjoy seeing it organically spool out. But I'm, I'm so happy that Dern is here. Yeah, and she, those fingernails and that wig. Yes. And that expression. That, oh, oh, my goodness. That beautiful, wistful shot just... Did yeah, there were a thousand emotions in her face. So... The fact that Diane, because you have, it takes a full like nanosecond for you to go, Diane, Diane's Diane. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I thought they were going to look for all sorts of characters yeah. when he says, Audrey, so you, Audrey, Andy, you know. Yeah, who knows? Um, so. Yeah, did anyone else get a massive Casablanca vibe from this scene? Like, I don't think he could have looked more Bogart if he wanted to. Yeah, other. I know. But when it he walked that, up, the that lighting. That beautiful trench coat and. Yeah, the walking to a bar, the finding a woman by herself there was. Just in my heaven, oh. one of the people I think. It's quite delightful. Is there a history, Andy, of, of Laura Dern being considered for Diane? Well, Is there it, like a long history there? Well, she appeared on the cover of Entertainment Weekly about a month ago in the in a car with Coop and David Lynch. So I mean, like, yes, I mean, the, I mean, the image that's currently my phone's lock screen. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but I mean, like, back then, because obviously he's following oh, no. Wild at Heart. No. No, that was, no, she was doing a bunch of other things. I mean, they already had worked together, of course, but I don't think... She, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that was meant for season three that never happened that m- that may have been part of it, but it's never been spoken of. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think, like I've said in earlier episodes, like when I was watching the original series, I desperately didn't want them to reveal who Diane yeah, was. Well, this is, yeah. But I feel like, yeah, this this is the perfect way can. to do it. This yeah. is the perfect mm. way. And the perfect actress. Well, I didn't... Th- yeah, I thought that was more likely. I mean, we do see Cooper in The Missing Pieces talking to an invisible Diane. Somebody sent him the earplugs or he sent, found them himself and pretended that they were sent to him or something like that. This kind of seems yeah. slightly more plausible. And I think, like, the reveal, the quality of that shot is, like, very, very worked. For me, the best scene so far in the whole, in season three, was Evil Coop's interrogation at the hand of Gordon and Cooper. Yeah. By, oh by a zillion miles, just because of its very, very dark implication. And you know, suddenly, that there's a second world, that Gordon and Albert know about it, they know potentially who to get to solve it. So all this world building is just occurring in a sequence of a few seconds. Yeah. And you go, oh, God, what a dark implication. Mm. The fact that it's Diane is being put into it suddenly raises the stakes for a show, I think, mm. that was potentially so far not ne- not necessarily going to get everywhere that you wanted it to. Mm-hmm. But with I think with her, it's like, okay, we're going to go the whole hog. We're going to resolve some of the key themes yeah. so you're suggesting that they may have spent as long time on uh, Diane's wig as they did in shooting that entire scene with Ike the Spike I think they're totally different I think I'd, I would love to know if David Lynch was even in that hallway because yeah. I don't think so mm. I yeah. think he would have turned off the light turned off the lights there's just it's a TV show you've got to have second and third unit cameras running doing all kinds of pickups he's obviously like a strong world director but you know, so is Mark Frost mm. having yeah. a huge amount of input into the story. And yeah, and as I've said, I don't think David Lynch gets enough credit for being sloppy sometimes as well. Yeah. They're like from not just different series, they're like from different visual languages. Ike 
Mm. He's got different levels of shininess on the sweat on his foreheads in different places. The makeup is uneven. Yeah. Right. Mm. right. And Lord Dern's reveal is like the camera's inching forward, quarter inch by quarter inch. Forget it. Hamburger and a Black Forest Ghetto. Like, it's, <laughs> it's different. Cool. Um, and then we move to Twin Peaks. And um, we're in the new Fat Trap trailer park. Yes. Now, this has caused consternation amongst people who've paid any attention to Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me. Because consternation? People or, aren't happy that Harry Dean Stanton is here? Oh, uh, people, was, yeah, people are thrilled about that. But in my, <laughs> Cooper's My Life, My Tapes, he identifies Fat Trap trailer park as about one hour north of Portland, which puts it around Castle Rock in Oregon. In other scenes, it must be near the border, Canadian border, to be part of Mike and Bobby's drug dealing with the corrupt sheriff from Deer Meadow. Would Leyland drive to another state to, to hook up with a prostitute? Anyway, so there's a lot of questions around the... the least of Leyland's problems. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like, so it's geographically it's been wandering around. But anyway, this is the new one, and it seems to be on the outskirts of Twin Peaks. And who cares, because we've got Harry Dean standing there. And we've got Carl Rod, who readers of The Secret History of Twin Peaks will know was involved in an abduction along with uh, the log lady. Harry Dean Stanton, a man with the most face ever. <laughs> this, um, I mean, the sequence that we lead into with him is obviously being ferried, if you like, yes. to witness something. And I think it's really important that we never, for, like, we don't forget how awful is the sequence is as it ends. There's a really key dialogue, I think, in the car. Yeah. Where he's just basically telling us what the world is, the mm. world of Twin Peaks. That's like the key, again, world building, I think, moment where he just mm-hmm. says, you know, that fucking war, that's it, three yeah. words, done. You've got everything you need to know about his opinion and the opinion of a bunch of other people in town yeah. about a sequence. And it's like, oh, yeah, shit. And it's well, just very quick. And it's like, yep, we're done here. Yeah. Like 25 years covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's having a conversation with a friend whose partner is called Linda. Ding, ding. Yeah. Rich and Linda. Is it? Maybe. Maybe not. Um, and they're talking about getting an electric wheelchair from the government, fucking government. So there seems yeah. to be some sort of Obamacare nod to healthcare mm. situation in America, which feels wholly from Frost's pen because Frost if you follow him on Twitter he may have been an account you muted I'm not sure but he's extremely politically active yeah and I think they I mean they're both <clears throat> both Frost and Lynch have a lot to say about have a lot to say about the healthcare situation even I mean Lynch is sort of staying out of these things but in the last few years he's you know he's been one of the rare people of that generation really to say like we're, we're in big trouble mm. so mm. I suspect it won't be the last we hear of the healthcare thing yeah. Which is timely because Americans are about to have their healthcare. Yeah. What's left of their healthcare system destroyed this week, so. Yeah. Mm, yeah, Grim Times. But you don't need to know about Grim Times because you can just look at Harry Dean Stanton's face because he's so brilliant and so expressive. Uh, so he, uh, he, get, he winds up um, sitting on a park bench drinking some double R diner coffee that we managed to find in a previous scene from a woman called Miriam, who's a teacher who seems to have gotten coffee for him. Yes. Miriam has some amazing costuming, by the way. As yeah. soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, I'm nicking that. Yeah. That's, oh, my God. Her skin. She's just an incredible. Oh, incredible and, I, and I just love her. Just like she she loves Norma's pie so much. She comes in and she has like two slices of <laughs> yeah, day. And leaves a great big tip. What a woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, that scene also gave us a reintroduction to Heidi. Which, it did. Oh, I don't know if anyone saw that coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... She, walked past, she walked past in the previous episode, I think. In the background, mm. I think. Like, I just mm. sort of like... Is that? Okay, we're, we're done. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, that was a glorious scene. Um, yeah, and so um, Carl Wright is talking about he's been smoking cigarettes for 75 years every fucking day. One of the great yeah. comedic lines of the episode. And then he's sitting under the tree. This is the, the key scene that we get to. where He's appreciating the glory of a tree. He's looking at the life yeah. force going through it or something like that. And 
Um, if you've read The Secret History, then you'll know that he's got these particular connections that may have become coming into play during the return. Um, so he's appreciating life, and then this mother and son are playing a very unusual game of tag. Did anybody else get reminded of, of particular movements of other characters from watching this really strange game where somebody will run about 10 feet, then freeze, and somebody will run up and catch them, and then that person runs 20, 10 feet and freezes? As a job, I teach game studies. So my immediately my thought goes to like how um, catch games are like one of the first games that people learn as they grow up and like touching and physical games with a parent are very very important and so it's super super primal mm. so the child catch and release games are super super primal that's almost for me that was almost like stage direction rather than mm. just a game it's like very very stagey yeah. rather than anything that was planned there didn't seem to be a number of steps or anything yeah so it's I think it would be better to look at it as like a very very pure like bonding mm. moment mm. rather than a game per se yeah okay it's very it's like it's like a, basically like an organised hug yeah um, yeah yeah okay and that's what that's what gets interrupted by the death so it's, mm. it's very very like stark and cutting yeah mm. okay I was reminded of the Doppelkoop and sorry, Cooper and his doppelganger in the red room when he gets caught because um, he freezes and he runs up, grabs him at the back, and then just as he's yeah, trying to get through the curtain. Yeah, I'll have to go back and watch the movements, but yeah, that's that's a good call. Yeah, mm. that's what I was thinking of. Carl smiles beatifically. Is that the word? Beatifically. Beatifically, yes, at watching this game, and then it ends tragically with the arrival of a very agitated, upset Richard Horn in a live truck. Who's agitated? To be fair. Not that we need to be fair to him. No. But, but uh, he, I mean, he's gone through some pretty weird stuff in the last few minutes. Yeah. Yes. As, so, as, as we backtrack mm-hmm. and we arrive at the mill, mm-hmm. which is still operational, which I'm, yeah, I was, I was uh, interested to see, considering I'd kind of only thought at this point that maybe Twin Peaks had become either a tourist town or some kind of... <clears throat> Pardon me. Some kind of like maybe Portland satellite city mm. where if you can't afford to live in Portland, you go live in Twin Peaks. Yeah, or Seattle or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe it might be craft lumber. Yes. They're just making the crafty things rather than being a larger industrial scale. I don't know. It did look pretty. I mean, it's, yeah, it's being used, but it didn't look thriving. It was pretty no, empty. No, And yes, we we go into obviously one of the warehouses at the mill, and Richard Horn is in there. Doing mm. some kind of cocaine deal with Balthazar Getty, who is a magician, and this should have <laughs> set up everyone to start with. Never trust a magician. Mm. Ever. Maybe the name Red. Trixie business. And a silent African American friend with a large machine gun. Yeah, I wasn't happy about that kind of coding. Mm. Mm. Yes, anyone. It's pretty weak as a scene as it kicks off, and then it feels like the scene's going nowhere. Mm. Like zero. I was mm. like, okay, like just hurry up. And as it pauses and then the drama kicks in, you get, oh, actually, Balthazar Getty can actually carry a lot of acting. Yeah, I was amazed. And he can pause and all the, all the overacting, the leather jacket bravado gets toned down just enough to be creepy. And it's like, okay, now we can, now we can actually have a scene. Yeah. And then the, the coin flip, I think. The, I, don't, I don't think we're going to see those characters in any great expanded detail. Well, we'll see. Mm. again but yeah the just a big a big black guy with a gun following on from jade <sighs> i'm like yeah you know you, no wonder the op-ed writers are having a field day yeah there's a zero going on there's no thought put into it what's interesting about red though is like it's something else that's supernatural 
it's something else and it's prestigious prestigiation magic it's very small mm. but we've got that and we've got the numbers with ike and spike so there's people who are practicing magic yeah in this world of twin peaks like multiple people and it's not like things happen to them they're controlling stuff they're yeah getting... yeah well i feel they're both controlled yeah. in a way i mean there's a hierarchy of evil going on here and it is moving in a weird way. So Red, you know, he, he's lo- he, again, he's, he's loaded with gestures. He's gesturing violence, but he's not yeah. actually carrying, carrying it through, which reminds some people of Bobby Peru or some other people who would be able to yeah. just intimidate by suggestion. There's the idea that maybe that we're seeing this scene through Richard's eyes, and he's just mm. done a line of coke, and so everything seems kind of, you know, horrific and magic and possibly inexplicable to him. Um, I, don't, we don't, I don't think we ever see that many POV shots from him, but we see certainly shots of him looking completely overwhelmed. There's a reference to the King and I that comes from nowhere. You know what? You should watch King and I again because I think there's a catch and release game in the King and I or in the, as they lead up to the dance sequence in the original King and I. I think there is too. I, yeah. It's been a year since I've seen it, but my film brain is telling me yeah, that, yeah, yeah. the dance sequence has got catch and release. But if you're watching, if you're listeners of the podcast, go back and watch it and it's not there, apologise. <laughs> you can at me on Twitter. I will block you there as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it has been mentioned before, like Leyland has sung a song from a Pete Martell has mentioned it in conversation back in season two. It's a good film. It's a, yeah, it's great, but why is it recurring? What's the story? I don't know, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's, something, it's another little thing. I, I also just want to do a little shout out to Eamon Ferrin's acting oh God, in this scene too. because he just, he was this beautiful through line to a lot of those really troubled yet violent and aggressive but also extraordinarily vulnerable teenage boys that so populated the first seasons of Twin Peaks like there's a through line to characters like Bobby mm. um, even even some you know less less loved characters such as um, characters like Leo less loved so I think you know, that's much, covers it. just like done <laughs> yeah just those kind of characters that like you really really love to hate but by the same token they're never they're never entirely villainous there's always this vulnerable human element to them like you you totally understand why Richard comes out of that meeting just entirely wired and entirely not really engaging with the rest of the world because he's just experienced something really uncanny and really mm-hmm. frightening yeah. and he's fucked up on drugs so I, yeah. I feel like this episode also continues my theory that Twin Peaks is just like David Lynch's long-standing PSA of don't do drugs kids <laughs> or at least don't do it without the benefits of transcendental meditation <laughs> I was setting up my TV to watch the finale of a show called Twin Peaks. It's Twin Peaks and it's very end. I panic and change the subject to the Twin Peaks reboot till she gets bored. I mean, she totally gave up on Twin Peaks. It's too David Lynch. Oh, my Twin Peaks experience. Brilliant. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea what's going on. You know, if you, if you watch the old documentary, Pretty as a Picture, or the new one, The Art Life, David Lynch has a, has a rock-solid memory of key moments of being told that he's fucked up by his parents and by mm. friends. Rock-solid memory. That's all he talks about. Mm. You watch both of those documentaries 15 years apart. He can barely remember the films. He can <laughs> barely remember what, what order he's worked them in or what was in them. But if his dad told him, you've disappointed me, he remembers what his dad was wearing. 
He remembers everything. And I think when he has these confrontation moments between characters like Bobby Briggs and his dad, and, you know, there's, there's all these confrontations where a character with a bit of moral sense confronts a character who's going off the rails. And I think that's what Red is trying to do. He's like, not only am I corrupting you, but in this moment, you've got a chance to sit straight and bend yourself to something bigger than yourself. So it's a corruption, but he's also trying to inculcate him into a sort of like, it's a calming down. Mm. He doesn't calm down, he just freaks out. So we get 10 seconds of pity for him mm. in the car. And you're absolutely right, you get 10 seconds of pity, yeah. and then he's like speeds up and goes, fuck you. Yeah. And you're like, okay, you, you, you screwed up. And so you're, yeah. you're paying yeah. for that. Yes, mm. yeah. straight away. He's intermediate, yeah. Mm. The heads I win, tails you lose. Beautiful line, I thought. Um, the way that we've got a recurrence of the sound of Cooper's ring being flipped into the air from uh, season beginning of season two, when he's got everybody together in the roadhouse to just he knows the killer is in the room. But that's so it's the exact it's the exact same, same tone that we get when the mm. when the Nicholas is, is yeah is being is hovering I suppose, um, and then pulled out of Richard's mouth. There's a sense that now that Twin Peaks, you know, there's this town in the new in basically since the economy's been so fucked for so long that there's towns that used to be like a mining town or a, or a logging town, obviously. And now they're just a highway. Yeah. And there's people still trying to live and the municipal r- rules are you still have to pay this much tax and but there's nothing left of that town and mm. trucks are now moving past. Mm. You get a sense that Twin Peaks is both part of a bigger world but it's just been completely flattened. Yeah. Mm. So outside the diners, there's yeah. all that truck noise and you're like, yeah, fuck. And so, yeah, the drug dealers are coming in, but they're like, they're not even staying long enough to introduce themselves. Yeah. Like, who's the worst kid around? Okay, you're my dealer. I've got six, six o'clock in Spokane. I'm out of here. Like, yeah. I'm out. And you just get a sense that these agents are sort of coming in and out all the time. Yeah. So I really felt like there's actually, I, I don't know, I felt like it was a no, sort of an okay mm. Uh, mm. framing for the, yeah. for the character. And particularly if you subscribe to, and I think I think most of most of the fans have kind of gotten onto this, the, the accident caused by Richard occurs at the same intersection where Leyland and Laura had that really upsetting incident during Firewalk With Me. And if you think back to Firewalk With Me, it was literally just like there was like a gas station at the side and really not much else going on. But if you look around like the the reaction shots around the intersection after this poor kid has been has been hit, it, it seems like a kind of built up area that's also simultaneously obviously a massive thoroughfare for traffic and trucks and things like that so it signposts you immediately what time has done to the town yeah and how different it is there's more people they're young people and they're professionals yeah yeah Yeah. but there's still people living in shit poverty yeah absolutely so you've got like this sort of picture of a town and isn't it interesting you've got the shots of carl and the mother who are like right up close they're really really careful and then it's like these medium shots of like the passers-by who are barely acting. Yes. Yeah. Just like this is fascinating. Oh, yeah. this, this is shit. Like yeah. clearly extras. And I described saw someone describe them online as they look like the Kickstarter backers of the new season. <laughs> and I was like, they look like guest stars, <laughs> oh, like, oh, it's Tony, you paid 20 bucks to be in the scene. And you go, yeah, that's kind of weird. And you know, but I won't fully discredit that. I mean, there were obviously those sequences 
of really be really bad sort of onlookers in yeah first it's, season um, but you know that was really like it almost lets the air out of a very dark scene yeah mm. it was like, fascinating because it was the, like an, a tragedy happening in a small town but this time rather than being emotionally involved or acting like they've actually know who they, that child yeah. is and that mother is they just watch I was half expecting a phone to come out and people to start yeah. filming it or something because there was mm. I think that must have been directed to show no emotion yeah, yeah because you can like if, if you want to show grief you can just have the words Harry Dean Stanton flashing on screen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You don't need to do anything. Yeah. He can do it. So it's there for a reason. I think it's to show. Same. Yeah. 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 And I also found it interesting that obviously there were all of these witnesses to this incident, but you only see that shot of Miriam yeah. clocking that it's Richard driving the truck. No one else seems to know who he was at mm. all. So it kind of shows you, yeah, how much bigger the town is and how even um, though... Does she recognise him or is she just registering his face? She could. I think she's registering his right. face and just from the look of shock on her face, I'm presuming that she recognised him. I could be wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's key. Yeah, it's I don't right. think Miriam's going to go well. No, yeah. unfortunately. Well, I don't know. Yeah, nice, yeah. nice bubbly people in... Twin Peaks tend not to. Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a lot to cover. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. True. So, also, what do you think happened with the soul of the child? Do you think that was Garmabosia that was coming out of him, or do you think that, or was he too young to have experienced pain and suffering? Or I think, it, yeah, it seemed very pure. Whatever was happening. Um, yeah. It didn't seem like uh, uh, Carl's face as he he witnessed this floating up from the child and and, and into the sky. It seemed like he he had this almost like reverent. Look yeah. on his face of just like oh re- registering that the soul was leaving he didn't seem upset by it or worried no, about it anyway witnessing. it was he was witnessing mm. um, i saw it as more of a fiery sort of light a yellow light and i checked when i went on the rewatch i wanted to see if it disappeared into the into the power lines or if it went into the sky and most of it disappears against the power lines but then some of it still goes above so i'm it's deliberately i think ambiguous as to whether this yeah. is part of a spirit going back to the lodge or if it's like another Lynch bringing an angel. No, I think it, I think it's just pure positive golden light, transcendental meditation stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Very, very pure golden light. I think it goes past the the why the why is we then get the noise coming back in. I think it's just like a cue to the overall detonation mm. over the scene. You know, it's like it detonates. Yeah. So I would be very surprised if we're told that the lodge has been involved in some way but then the next shot is of the electricity scene that the I know yeah <laughs> so I read I read, I went on stupidly went to a reddit thread about oh. it. no no mistakes and then brain poison got the brain poison <laughs> yeah um, well I know and, and I saw people arguing about it but like yeah. it's it's golden light coming up into the sky it's, it's not Okay. It's not hard to read. How did, how, well, this is another conundrum is how the new Fat Trout trailer park has exactly the same telegraph pole number as <laughs> the one the old one I'm not going to try and explain that, but obviously it's very, very important to have that that in there, uh, along with the, pa- the, pa- the sound of the energy uh, crackling, as well, which is quite strange. And then we have a, so- a short so- shot of Richard cleaning the child's blood off the fender of his car. Mm. And just generally freaking out. And generally being, yeah, very upset and angry. An unusual way that for evil to work, I think, mm. but a very telling one. Yeah, I think he's going to come, like, we're going to have to go through quite a redemption for that boy mm. yeah um for us to gain any kind of sense for him yeah mm. in the bigger in the bigger picture but you know he's he's mm, but he didn't act with malice it was an, it was an accident he was speeding and that was he wrong. did act with malice and he bar. ran away he did yeah. act with malice in the bar yes yeah that definitely yes. oh my God. And, and so yeah, and yeah it, it, 
his behavior is kind of mounting up and i think that we can have sympathy for his situation because he is clearly not in a good situation yeah. he's all. a victim he's he, he's definitely a victim in some ways but also he's clearly someone who is not interested in even acknowledging his moral failings or evil things that he has done he's just going to run away from them yeah still in twin peaks we move to the sheriff station and hawk is in the restroom he and drops a buffalo nickel. Andy is so excited about I'm this I'm beyond. This is my favourite scene of the entire <laughs> series so far. First of all, buffalo nickel stopped being struck in 1938. Very rare, unusual, but of course, hugely significantly important. Um, he notices the Nez Pierce sign on the back of the cubicle door. And then we are led to the pages of the diary. <gasps> Whose diary? I think <gasps> it's going to be Laura's. Um, I like so this. recap us. What, what, okay. Why are the pages... Missing pages significant. They're obviously crucial, but refresh. Okay, so yes, refresh, refresh. Um, okay, so at the end of Fire Walk with Me, as Leyland is about to kill Laura, he clutches the diary pages in his hand and says, "I thought you knew it was me," and then shakes them. So they've been left at the murder scene. Mike is the only other person who was at the murder scene besides Ronette, who was unconscious, and then Laura, who dies, and then Leyland, who runs away. Um, so I believe this is currently what I'm this is the first thing I thought when I saw that when I saw the, the pages I was like oh my god this is incredible because so Mike had, the, had them he's, when he was brought in for interrogation and he was denied haloperidol he, well, he actually self-administered that haloperidol in that cubicle like 26 years ago he had the chance to stash the pages there because I think he still had them on him now that Hawk has found them Hawk is about the only person with perfect courage who can face the lodge and to be able to actually go in and re- rescue Coop and so I think these are the diary pages that Annie told Laura to write the good Coop, the good Dale is in the lodge write it in your diary it was the one clue the one breadcrumb we were given in Firewalk with me to try and resolve the scene at the end of um, season 2 in episode 29 so I think this is like this magical tying in and also Lynch mentioned this in an interview in 1997 yeah the interviewer said, the movie plays around with a lot of notions of time. For instance, Dale Cooper is mentioned in a scene, but he isn't, hasn't come to town yet. And Lynch says, exactly. Although I don't really like talking about things, I've got to say one thing about that scene. When Annie suddenly appears in Laura's bed, this is before Laura has been murdered and before Cooper's come to Twin Peaks, Annie appears, filled with blood, wearing exactly the same dress she's wearing when she's in the red room with Cooper in the series, in the future. She says to Laura, the good Dale is in the lodge, but he can't leave, write it in your diary. And I know that Laura wrote that down in a little side space in her diary. And so now, if Twin Peaks, the series had continued, someone may have found that. It's like someone in 1920 saying Lee Harvey Oswald or something, and later you sort of see it all. Sounds like you've done some solid theorising, mm. Well, that, yeah. I don't know. It's probably someone else's diary. Look. Um. <laughs> um, and thanks to um, Twin Peaks Scotia for actually sending me a, a close-up shot of that, which you can see the word Annie written on a piece of paper. All right, so we have it very clearly there's going to be an actual realisation by other characters that Coop is somewhere. Yeah, we have narrative progress, guys. Narrative progress. Claxing. Chad also makes an appearance in this scene as well. What a knob. Possibly the only person whose hatred by the fan community is rivals that of Richard Horn. Yeah, no, I think I hate Chad more. Really? Yeah, Chad hasn't revealed any kind of <laughs> vulnerability. Chad, Chad is Reddit. Chad is Reddit. Chad is Reddit. Good call. Chad is the internet. Chad is Reddit. Chad is 4chan. Mm, he's Pepe. He's Pepe. He's Kekistan. It's him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, we get another beautiful scene with Doris. That, well, it was just kind of funny and then becomes horrifically tragic. Yes. In, in, Who's really liking Maggie? I love Maggie. Definitely. She's, she's got fantastic expressions. She's got fantastic expressions. She's not taking Chad shit. She's just doing her job. 
you know, and, and having quiet empathy for people, which yeah. I think is very important for someone on a police switchboard. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty much the last scene, actually. We, oh, we get this, the roadhouse. Yes, We're still with Sharon Van road. Etten. And the lyrics, I wish it was seven all night. Yes. From a song to Reefer. Yeah, no. As Not a, an accident, I don't think. No, that, that that is a fabulous album of Sharon Van Etten's, and as soon as that song kicked in, I was just like, ah, oh, of course, of course. <laughs> It's another one like like uh, Chromatics' Shadow, where as soon as you pull up the lyrics, you're just like, oh, this was chosen for a very specific reason. Mm, yeah, I think so. Um, that brings us to the end of the episode. But um, your most important part of the podcast is predictions. Predictions, yes. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. So next week we get part seven. Seven, come on, and this is like going to be huge. There's going to be massive reveals here. It's probably going to be the greatest one yet, and it's going to be one that Lynch is saving a whole bunch of stuff for part He's seven. He's just going to go out of control. Oh, and it's just it's going to be not going to be an accident. It's going to be beautiful. I want to ask you: Do you do? I've I've been quite torn because I didn't want to this much time in the Black Lodge. Yeah. I'm like I'm done. I'm cooked. It's done. It's sort of too much. But when if we go back there, there's a whole bunch of characters that are there and shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of characters could potentially leave as well. Is there anything that you want to see happen in that space? Do you want to see Laura reemerge in some way? Do you want to see? Mm-hmm. Do you want to see Joan Joan Chen Joan escape Chen. the doorknob? <gasps> I know, I would absolutely love to see Joan Chen escape her doorknob. That's like my number one wish. <laughs> but sadly, I don't think it is something that um, we would be gifted with. I'm very curious about Laura and her presence in the lodge and how there is a part of her clearly still there. I don't know whether she will be released into the world. That that would be a hell of a thing. I, I would like some sense of, if not closure, then at least rounding yeah, off okay. with her. Well, I think the Black Lodge will be destroyed in the series. Really? I think it will be destroyed because it's, it's a stage. It's mm. always been a stage. The space underneath is a house. Right, it's a home mm. with a hearth and people and mothers coming, all that stuff, which renders it permanent family space. There's a zone, if you like, of permanency, but the Red Room, Black Lodge is a stage. And so I think visually it makes sense for something to happen to that space. You think you're I think the room about the convenience store? I'm talking about the room, well, <laughs> maybe. I'm talking about the dark place that, he, you know, that is in, suspended in space. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. Um, we could very well be the fucking convenience store. My brain is tingling. Um, uh, <laughs> but I think, the, I think where this goes to satisfy but also destroy fan expectations, I think, is where we're going, is that all the New York stuff, all the FBI stuff leads to something tragic, obviously, but I think we end up with this, the resolution is the destruction of the space. Right, yeah. okay. Closing up of the lodge. Nice. Curtains are always drawn. I'm into that. Oh, good call. But no, we did get to see past them in part two. I think it was a three where we saw the, the white horse, the camera. It was great. Yeah, beautiful. They're endless but as well, though. It's got to go. <laughs> it's all got to be sold. Sweep it out. Wow. Exactly. Mm. All those people with tattoos like shit. <laughs> it's gone. Um, That's my prediction. Well, I would like to see uh, Leyland. I, would, I, I feel like he's got more to do than just go. Find more. And Everyone's also, age, she's gotten younger. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, really want Hawk to go in. I feel like he's the one pure soul that can go in and actually do some good in that place. I quite like Dougie in there. Just being the small magic the small, feed. Yeah, it's yeah. like a glitter ball or something, yeah. Mm. Anyway, well, thank you very much for stepping in. No, thank <gasps> you It was a real pleasure much. to get your brain open um, on that subject. Your podcast yeah. is doing um, great work. It's more cheerful and less aggressive than some of the other Twin Peaks oh, podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. We, we 
going to uh, try to keep things pleasant. <laughs> uh, it's also great to see um, Australian cultural commentators doing the hard yards on actual research, which is also very rare. So good job. Glad you're oh, appreciating that. Thank, thank you. you. It sounds like you do plenty yourself. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Yes. Where, where can we find you upon the interwebs, Christian? Uh, you can at me at Christian McRae, M-C-C-R-E-A on Twitter. And there I will block you. <laughs> but you have blue ticket validation, don't you? I have blue ticket validation. God, yes. This is the first for a guest, I believe. Oh. Yeah. God, so exciting. Absolutely. Um, I'm at Andy Ricky. There we go. And you, you can figure yeah, me Hallie's out. around. She's you, like I'm a, around. She's an entity. Yeah. Much like a piece of yellow soul heading towards the sky. doing tonight is very very important and i will be thinking of you thank you sweetheart as i drink this fine bordeaux 